Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Yeah, so good to be with you guys this morning, and uh, so great to have my family here as well. Just love, love having you guys with us. Uh, last week, by the way, we're studying the book of Zechariah as a church, and last week uh, we went through chapter 11 of the book. And if you remember, uh, we, we covered in chapter 11, God gets Zechariah, the prophet, to play a little bit of dress up. And Zechariah puts on some shepherd clothing, and in the first part of chapter 11, he is to play the good shepherd. And the good shepherd in that portion of Zechariah chapter 11 is all a prophecy about the rejection of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd that would come, how Israel would reject Christ at his first coming. We know it was all about that because uh, later in chapter 11, there's a prophecy that is fulfilled by Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. And it's laid out perfectly with how many coins and everything about the potter's field. So that was last week in the first part of chapter 11. And then if you remember, partway through chapter 11, God has Zechariah change his clothing. He says, now I want you to put on some different clothing. I want you to now play dress up as the foolish shepherd. And we see him portray this anti-shepherd, we called him, because he was not a good shepherd. He was a foolish shepherd. Really, it showed how God was saying, listen, Israel is going to reject Jesus at his first coming, the good shepherd, which will open them up to accepting the foolish shepherd or the anti-shepherd, also known as the antichrist. Right? And, and this whole prophecy that comes through. But we also saw in chapter 11 that, that Israel, they're still God's people. Even after this big mistake, and God is going to judge the foolish shepherd. We'll, we'll actually see this judgment take place, really, here in chapter 12 this morning, Zechariah chapter 12, as God sticks up for his people in the end times and in the last days. It's actually going to be a little bit like this scene from the movie The Lion King. Or maybe you've seen it. So now I play that scene simply because it, it honestly will be very similar to that. Uh, you see, the nations, we're going to read about it this morning in Zechariah chapter 12. The nations of the world are going to gather against Israel. Little tiny Israel, kind of just like, like Simba and Nala that were in that video there, right? They're going to gather against this little tiny nation of Israel to destroy, to annihilate, to kill them. But there's going to be the roar of a king that steps in. King Jesus is going to step in, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we're going to see that with God's help, there will be supernatural deliverance and supernatural salvation. If you have your Bibles, which you'll need one to follow along, whether you're using your cell phone or something else, uh, there's Bibles in the seats all around you. It's going to help you a lot if you have a Bible to follow along in. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Zechariah, easiest way to find it. You guys know it by now. Go to the Gospel of Matthew, which is about three quarters of the way through the Bible. Oh, I already turned to Zechariah, probably because I've been there. And then go backwards. And you'll hit Malachi, and then right before Malachi, you will get to the book of Zechariah. Why don't we pray before we, uh, before we look at our passage this morning? Well, Father, this morning I ask that you would um, once again open up your word to us. Lord, we know that um, 
We know that you have something specific to speak to us this morning. Lord, whether we're here in this house or whether we're joining online, we want you to speak to us. We want you to transform our lives. We want you to, 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 to show us, God, the way to live in your life, in your blessing. And so, Jesus, open our eyes. Teach us, lead us, guide us. We thank you again for your word, for the power of your word. We love you so much. Amen. All right. The first thing that we're going to see in Zechariah chapter 12 is supernatural deliverance. Supernatural deliverance. Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. I'm not sure how many of you like to introduce yourself in a similar kind of manner or perhaps introduce your spouse kind of like this. Does anybody? I mean, none of us would, of course, because only God can say these things. And what he's doing here is he's setting up for us chapters 12, 13, and 14. Because he's going to have this oracle, as it talks about here, this word, this prophecy. And he's saying, he's saying, listen, he's establishing right off the top. Don't forget who it is that's saying these things. I am all powerful. I am creator of everything. Therefore, he's saying, my plans will come to pass. Everything that I speak, everything that I proclaim is going to happen. So what's going to happen? Well, we're going to find out next. Look in verse 2. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem... A cup of staggering. Other translations say intoxicating drink or drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So he starts off by just saying this. First of all, the, the nations of the world are going to get a little bit tipsy against Jerusalem, is kind of what he's saying here. They're going to act as if they're drunk, essentially. They're not going to be thinking straight. Israel's going to be this international headache and a big hangover for the world. That's what he's kind of establishing here. And the problem's going to be is that they're going to be like this, but they're also going to be a heavy stone, he says. They're going to be a big problem for the world. How many of you kind of go, hey, I'm kind of seeing that happen? right? I want to read for you, um, in one of the commentaries I read, they quoted a man named Dave Hunt. This was written a little while ago, 2004, so it's a little older, but, but this is what he says. How heavy is this burdensome stone? The United Nations has consumed one-third of its time deliberating over, deliberating over Jerusalem and Israel, a small despised nation with one-thousandth of the earth's population. From 1967 through 1989, out of 865 resolutions, 526 were against Israel. The last anti-Arab vote was 57 years ago in 1947. So this was written in 2004, so numbers would be even more inflated. More than 60,000 individual votes have been cast in the UN condemning Israel. In fact, the Bible's telling us here in Zechariah 12 that all the nations are going to be against Israel. There's the United Nations that don't seem to be too in favor of Israel. Well, here God says it's not just going to be the United Nations, but every nation in the world will come against Jerusalem and Judah. I mean, truly, if you think about it, the hate that is against Israel is a little bit weird. If you really think about it, what is going on here? Why is it, like, it defies logic in many ways. Jerusalem itself, I, I looked this up, Jerusalem's about 120, so there's the, the, the old city of Jerusalem, which is quite small, but Jerusalem itself today is about 125 square kilometers, which isn't that big. To put it into perspective, Nanaimo proper, so not the outline area, it's just Nanaimo proper, the city of Nanaimo is a, about 100 square kilometers. So Jerusalem's only just a little bit bigger than the city of Nanaimo. All of Israel, the whole land of Israel is 22,000 square kilometers, how big do you think Vancouver Island is? It's bigger, 32,000 square kilometers. Israel's way smaller than Vancouver Island even. Isn't it crazy? Think about this. The population of Jerusalem is, is about, it's less, it's not even, it's less than a million people. The population of Vancouver is 2.5 million. The population of Israel is 9.5 million. The world's population, we're nearing 8 billion. What is the deal here? Why is the focus of the entire world upon Jerusalem and Israel? Think about it. There could be hundreds of people that could be killed in one night in Vancouver. Some strange thing that goes on. Would it be world news? 
Not likely, it'd be probably national news, but would the whole world know about it? Yet you, you can, somebody throws a rock in Israel and it's world news. Do you know what I'm saying? There's this strange obsession with this little tiny area. There's a disproportionate influence and focus that the world has on Jerusalem and Israel. Why is that? Well, it's because Jerusalem is God's city. That's why, because Jerusalem is God's city. It's where Jesus is going to return. We're going to read about that in Zechariah chapter 14. He's going to set foot onto the Mount of Olives, which is right there in Jerusalem. It's also where Jesus is going to establish his his kingdom age, his future reign, a thousand-year millennial reign here on the earth. Do you know that in the Bible, a thousand times Jerusalem is referred to in the scriptures? About 200 of those thousand times aren't directly saying Jerusalem, but referring to Jerusalem as things like, like the city of David or the holy city or Zion or the city of God, which is referring to Jerusalem. And then 800 times in the scriptures, Jerusalem by name is mentioned and referred to. 800 times. There is really no other reason that the the attention of the world is upon Jerusalem except for the fact that God is doing all of this. Like he established it from the start. Hey, I'm God. (laughs) I created everything. What I say is going to go down. And really, that's what we're seeing take place. Just a little bit of a side note, and I wish we had more time to kind of really look into this, but how many times do you think Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran? Obviously, the Arab nations are the ones fighting over Israel and Jerusalem. How many times do you think Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran, in the holy scriptures of Muslim, Islam? Anybody know? How many is that? Those aren't binoculars. They're zeros. Zero. Jerusalem is never, ever mentioned in the Quran. Not once. In fact, the scripture that Muslims will use to justify there being the Dome of the Rock right on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem the scripture that they say, well, this is why the Joma of the Rock sits there. This is why it's such a holy place for us. That scripture isn't even found on the Dome of the Rock or inside the Dome of the Rock anywhere. There is this strange obsession. God is setting all of this up. And so we're told here that all the nations, not just the Arab nations, but all the nations in the end will gather against Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be all alone. All alone. Except for God. And that's a very powerful accept if you're not aware of that. Some of you might feel like you're all alone sometimes. And you know what God says? Well, I'll never leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm with you always. So that's a good accept to have. (laughs) We're going to see that here in this passage. God is with you. Eight billion versus nine and a half million people. How many think it should be a little bit of a walk in the park? This should be an easy takeover, correct? This should be like, like a cakewalk, right? Trying to take over Israel except the problem being God is on their side. And when God's on your side, you have everyone. You have everything. There's nothing that can come against you. God is on their side. In fact, he says here that he'll make Jerusalem like a heavy stone, a heavy stone that will injure anyone that comes against it. We know, some people might try to think, well, this is Rome maybe. This is a prophecy that Rome, this is not about Rome because we know when Rome came and attacked Israel, they sacked it in both meanings of the word. They destroyed Israel completely, kicked them out of the land. This is not about when Rome came. There has never been a time in history that this has taken place, nor a time because they were kicked out of the land where they were such an immovable object that anybody that came against them were completely injured. They're in the land. This hasn't happened yet. How many of you have ever tried to lift something a little too heavy for you? Right? How many of you are, how many of you are over the age of 40, like myself, right? And you now lift things and you go, oh, my back, right? And you're kind of like, and so now when you pick things up, you'll, you, you know, when you pick things up now, it's like, okay, oh, I can't bend over. And you have to like, uh, you get down and then you, I got it. I got the pencil, right? That's kind of how we have to lift things now, right? And now he's saying, that's what Jerusalem will become to those nations that, that come against it. It's going to mess up their backs, <laughs> They're, they're, they're not, they're, they're, it's not going to be good. Or it might be like, have you ever like kicked a, like, have you ever seen a rock that's sitting out of the ground and it looks like it's only about this big maybe, but it's actually like an iceberg and it actually goes way underneath and you go to like kick it and you're like, ah, and you know, and it's like, that's the thing. It won't be able to move. That's what God's saying. It will be like an immovable rock. And the nations are going to realize this very quickly when they come against Israel. They're going to realize that they took on more than they bargained for. They thought it was only little Simba, but they're really going to be facing Mufasa. 
And so when is all this going to take place? When will this be? Well, the text tells us in verse 3. What does it say in verse 3? When will it be? On that day. Oh, on, oh, on that day. Oh, of course. Right, that day. Um, well, what is that day? That day, we see this phrase about 20 times in the last three chapters of Zechariah. On that day, God says, on that day, on that day. What day is he talking about? What is that day? It's a number of things that can be really encapsulated in that day. There's a number of things. It's, it's also referred to as the day of the Lord. In Scripture, it's sometimes referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Or the tribulation period is another way. The second coming of Christ even can be encapsulated in that day. Really, they're all kind of encompassed by that phrase, that day. This chapter specifically is focusing in on this one part of that day, which speaks about when all the nations, of course, come against Jerusalem, against Israel. It's also known as the Battle of Armageddon. And this will come after Israel accepts the foolish shepherd, the the Antichrist of chapter 11. Okay, so this will be um, the tribulation period. We know that the Antichrist will come on the scene. We talked about this last week, how Israel is looking for the Messiah still. Remember last week we had, um, I forget the guy's name, Schmierzen, something or other. Um, the, the, any kind of, anybody that shows up kind of like sort of a Messiah, the Jews are like, oh, that's the Messiah. They've been duped time and time again. As recently as just a number of years ago, right? And that, I showed that picture of the, the coffin, the funeral, they are going to, there's going to be, we're told, there's, there, there'll be many false messiahs that come, but there will be one, we're told, the ultimate antichrist that will show up. And he will bring peace. He will fix things in the Middle East. And for three and a half years, it's going to be all good. And the, the Jews and Israel will be like, wow, this is perfect. But we're told in scripture that partway through that, he's going to turn. And it's going to get really bad. Like we looked at the foolish shepherd last week, will begin to devour and tear apart the Jews. So now we see in verses 4 basically through nine, we see how Jerusalem is supernaturally defended and delivered by the Lord. Look at verse four. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake uh, of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So he's he's saying they're going to be blind or they're going to be out of their mind. That's what he's saying here. How many of you have ridden horses very much? Some of you are horse riders, you're able to. I've ridden a horse one time, and it's scary. That's all I've got to say. They're really big, you're really high off the ground. They scare me. And so I've ridden, once is enough for me. But here's the thing. God says here that the horses will be panicking, and not only that, what does he say? They're going to be blind. Who wants to hop on a horse that's panicking and blind? Yeah, no thank you. No thanks. Not, not up for that one. The other thing that that I should probably mention here is some people might think, well, it's talking about horses and this battle and everything. I mean, is this this going to be like, like, is this going to be modern warfare or ancient warfare? Do you know what I'm saying? Are there going to be horses in this battle? Like, is that what's happening here? We don't know, obviously. We totally aren't sure what it is. I personally think that it's probably going to be used with modern warfare, I think. Um, Some people think that it's kind of like, you know, Old Testament prophets trying to use language to describe like a tank. How do they describe a tank? I personally, I I think probably God just gave them symbols and pictures, things that would represent battles and different things of their day, of course, so they could describe it. Others actually think that it won't be modern warfare, but that modern weaponry will actually be immobilized and that, um, that things will revert back to ancient types of warfare in this end battle. Some people think that. So I don't, you know what, it's not really important. Um, I don't think, I think the point here that God is getting at is that what's he going to do? He's going to confuse the enemy. That's, what, that's the whole point that he's getting at here. He's going to supernaturally aid his people by confusing and blinding the enemy. But what's he going to do? He says, they'll be blind, but his eyes will be opened to his people. He'll be watching all, and that's, this is the key. In fact, we've actually had a number of kind of um, previews in a sense of coming attractions with some of Israel's war. Different wars that Israel has faced. Israel became a nation again in May 1948. That's when they, they, they finally once again came into the land, have their own land, and became a nation again, May 1948. In 1973, there was a war which, that's known as the Yom Kippur War. Okay, so this war, Israel should have been destroyed. They should have been taken out. Um, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's like the most holy day in Israel. And on this day, like the nation shuts down. You need to be aware of that. 
Even the military, everything closes shop, basically, on, on Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement. And on that day, in 1973, 5,000 Syrian tanks began to pour over the border into Israel. 5,000 Syrian tanks. They planned it perfectly because they knew, well, they're not going to be as many people, perhaps. As they're pouring over the border, there was only 163, this history tells us this, 163 Israelis that were stationed. That's it. Everyone else was, it's Yom Kippur. No one else needs to be there. There was one tank that Israel had. And do you know what that one tank did? Is, is the, the tank commander, would, there was a, a hill, and it, the Syrian tanks were coming up towards, uh, to cross over into Israel. There's a hill, and this tank would go up onto the hill and shoot uh, down at, at a tank and then move over and then, have you ever played World of Tanks, anybody in here? Micah got me addicted on that video game way years ago. I had to be like, I can't play this anymore. It was so addictive. And that's what you would do. You don't want to sit out there and just keep firing away. Otherwise, they're going to see you and they're going to shoot you. You're easy targets. Well, as these tanks are coming in, this one Israeli tank would just pop up and shoot and then move over and shoot and then move elsewhere and shoot and kept doing this. This one Israeli tank, it took out 106 tanks. One tank. In fact, the Syrians, in their communications, we know, they thought there was at least 500 tanks waiting for them on the other side. So they slowed down, they're taking their time, and, and they, they, it was one tank. They finally destroyed that one tank, they get over this hill, and they go, and there's like, there's no other tanks. And they keep going all the way to the Sea of Galilee. They could have destroyed, destroyed Israel right then and there. But you know what they did? They get to the Sea of Galilee, and they stopped. Something's wrong. Where's everybody? And they just sat there waiting for eight hours. They did nothing for eight hours. Why? They were confused. This is what God talks about here. He will confuse. This is that's a preview of what was going to take place. He confused them. And so, so meanwhile, what they were doing is they were kind of radioing back because they actually expected, they actually expected that this, to get to where they got, the Sea of Galilee, they thought it was supposed to take about four days of battle instead of like four hours. And so they're like, what do we do? And then the commanders back are like, uh, I don't know. We weren't supposed to be here yet. And so they're like, it's a trick. Don't go anywhere. And they totally, so they just sat there. Meanwhile, Egypt starts attacking Israel from the south. And as Egypt is attacking Israel from the south, what Egypt had planned to do was to face Israel on the Sinai Peninsula. Well, Israel, I don't know if it was God-led or what, didn't go through the Sinai Peninsula. They went around and they went straight to Cairo. Uh-oh. <laughs> All of a sudden, the Arab nations are like, hang on, this isn't looking good. We're in trouble. Do you know what they did? The Arab nations, they contacted the U.S. Secretary of State and said, you better step in before we destroy Israel. That was their whole plan from the start, was to try to destroy Israel. But they're like, we need help. You better stop them. <laughs> because they knew they were going to be destroyed. That's how they tried to paint it, though, that they would be the ones. And so the U.S. Secretary of State steps in, and they stop this war. And uh, it, it, There's been a number of times. I read in commentaries how many different times there have been these, these battles against Israel from Arab nations trying to attack and come in since they became a nation again. And miraculous, unexplainable survival of Israel and victories in many ways. It's crazy. Well, this, this is just a small picture in a sense of what's going to happen. Because as we read further about this battle, look in verse 5. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. Which is interesting because Israel today, though they are religious, they are really a secular nation. I mean, there are some very um, extreme Jews, but for the most part, they're secular. They do not believe in God really anymore. And so what, what is going to happen here is things are going to begin to change as they see God and his supernatural intervention taking place. And eventually, we're going to see in chapter 12, it's going to lead to a spiritual awakening, Israel's salvation. Verse 6, on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples. Well, the, well, Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Notice God's making it very clear. Jerusalem will remain Jerusalem. It's not going to be annexed. It's not going to be divided. Jerusalem will be Jerusalem as it stands. And notice as well how much God is saying that I will. I will. This is all God's doing. This is not Israel's. I will do all this. Verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. So what's going on here? These tents. And what God's saying is he's, he's going to give victory basically to the, the, the weakest kind of outlying areas of Judah. That's represented by the, these in these tents. 
So all in Jerusalem are going to know this. They're going to know this is a God thing. And it's also going to be so that they can't be, you know, one area kind of being like, we're stronger than you, ha ha. You know, it's like, no, this is God doing this. God's doing this. In fact, verse 8, on that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Do you see this? This this has not happened in history. You can't explain this away. This has not happened in history. And he actually says that the feeblest will be like David. Think about that. The weakest Israeli will be like David. David, who slew the tens of thousands, we're told in 1 Samuel. And the regular soldier, God says, is going to be like the angel of the Lord. Is the angel of the Lord very strong? God himself, yeah, he killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, remember? It's really summed up in verse 9 as, as God says, he, God himself, actually seeks and destroys the enemies of Jerusalem. Just a little note to self you need to put here. If, if you are around then that this takes place, if you're perhaps leading a country, I'm not sure if any of you are applying to lead any nations in the near future, but if you're leading a nation at this time, note to self, don't ever get involved in this invasion, okay? In fact, I'm not a betting man whatsoever, but, but if I were, don't laugh. I, okay, I, I do make, okay. I, I, okay, yeah, it's people, I see people looking at me going, what do you mean you're not a betting man? So I'm not a betting man in the sense that I don't gamble. What I do, I'm, I'm an idiot this way, um, I, I like to pay people to do things. So like I'll, I'll say to like, I've lost so much money to my wife and daughter where I'll be like, I'll be like, hey, I bet you can't, I'll bet you 50 bucks you can't guess what this song is I'm going to play next. I don't know why I do these things. And the foolish thing is I never ask them to have to pay me anything if they don't guess it. You know why? That's a good example of gambling. It's a waste of money. You're never going to win, right? You're always giving. You're never going to get anything anyway. And even, you know, yeah, and Dana was looking at me. She's like, yeah, I know you're betting. Because I tried it even with Dana the other, we were in this course together and, um, and, and so we were doing, we were, uh, it was FaceTime just two weeks ago. We were doing this course with Regent. Uh, Zoom, sorry, not FaceTime, correct. Sorry, Zoom. So we're on Zoom, all these different, there was a class that was there in person. There was about, I don't know, 15 of us that were on Zoom. And so, so you, your camera on your laptop would be watching you. And she was just saying to me, she's like, man, I got no money right now. And I'm like, I'll give you 50 bucks if you pick your nose on the Zoom in front of the class. <laughs> she wouldn't do it. It's 50 bucks. I'd... Anyway, so I'm not really a gambling man. Yeah, people are looking at me going, yeah, you are. So I'm not a gambling man. I also tried to, I also tried, I should say as well, she had, she had done a rap for the announcements this morning uh, and she was telling us in staff meeting, it was so good. And I was like, I'll give you $10 if you do the rap when you, oh, it was five to start. You're right. Sorry. <laughs> I upped it. I upped it because it I heard the rap and I was like, it's actually really good. Um, so I'm not really a gambling man, but I do throw away money sometimes, obviously, <laughs> which is what gambling is. So I guess I am. Bottom line is this. Anyway, don't ever bet against Israel. That is the bottom line. Don't ever go into a gamble or a bet against Israel. That's what we're seeing here. But what I I really want to point out this morning is this, is, is I want us to see God's deliverance in all of this. Notice that they, in chapter 11, they reject Christ. They reject Christ, the good shepherd, which we're we're told would lead to them accepting the foolish shepherd, the, the antichrist. And when does this supernatural deliverance take place? After all of this, after they rejected the Messiah and accepted a false Messiah. They put themselves into this mess and deliverance still comes from God. I think this is such a beautiful picture. We need to know this this morning. You may have rejected Christ. You may have even accepted a different Messiah. You may have gone after other gods, and maybe you are in a real mess right now. Maybe addiction or slavery or bondage. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you've worshipped other gods of money or power or lust or drugs, whatever it might be, alcohol, and you're stuck. You're in a mess. You need to know that Jesus wants to supernaturally deliver you today. And I want to say this. He wants to rescue you today from your mess And hear me now, even before you get everything figured out, 
Look at the example we have here of what Israel did. They reject Jesus, they accept a false Jesus, and God still says, I'm still going to rescue you. He wants you to live in freedom. You know why? Just because he loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And he wants you to walk in freedom. He wants you to walk in victory. In fact, his supernatural power is here right now to empower you to walk in newness of life. Acts chapter 1 and 8 tells us that when his spirit comes upon us, you receive power. Power to live a new life. We saw this even in chapter 4 of Zechariah that he told us it's not by might, right? And we looked at that, not by might, which represented in the Hebrew the strength of an army. That word means the strength of many, of an army. It's not by might, God said. And it's not by power, which in the Hebrew represents individual strength, the strength of an individual, the power of, an, of, 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 a, of self. And God said it's not by might, it's not by the many, and it's not by power, it's not by the single. But he said, how? By my spirit. And maybe you're here this morning, you've tried relying on others for strength. Maybe you've tried in your own willpower. And I just want to say this morning, it's time to give it to Jesus. Give it over to Jesus. Let him be the one that strengthens you to victory, to purpose, to freedom. Whether you're a Christian or not, God wants to deliver you today. He wants to set you free. You know why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. In fact, as I was preparing my message this past week, I felt like we should actually take a moment and just pray right now in the message and just invite the Lord to set us free from whatever bondage, Christian or not, that we find ourselves stuck in right now that we would experience him working in our life. And so can we do that? This morning, Lord, we come before you because you are a good God, you are a loving God, and you want to work supernatural deliverance in our lives. And I pray, God, right now, myself included in this, all, we, we know as soon as it is what we think of, what is it that thing that I want to be free from, but I can't? We know what it is right away. Jesus, you can set us free. You can deliver us. Even when we put ourselves into the mess because of your mercy and your grace, you are so good, you still want to deliver us. And I pray right now, Jesus, that you would come, that you would help us. And so, so online, in, in this room right now, just picture whatever that is, and maybe you want to picture it, giving it over to the cross, giving it to Christ at the empty tomb, saying, Lord, I, I can't do this anymore, but, but I know that you can. I can't, but you can. And so help, Lord, help. Set us free, Jesus. Deliver us, Lord. I pray right now for supernatural deliverance to take place. Old habits, attitudes, addictions, bondages, that we would find freedom in you, Jesus. Help, Lord. Help, Jesus. Thank you that you're here, God. Thank you that you're here to help. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. I just want to encourage you, ask him, invite him. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. So not only will God's enemies be destroyed, will he destroy the enemies of Israel, but we're going to also see in this passage that he's also going to bring revival to Israel. You see, God's goal here is not just to bring national preservation to the nation of Israel. He wants to bring spiritual restoration. So secondly, we see supernatural salvation. Look at verse 10. And I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So he's going to bring this to deliverance, and then he says, I'm going to overwhelm them with this, this mercy and this grace that is over and above. He's going to just cover them with it. You guys know what mercy and grace are, right? I've got it for you on the screen. Mercy, this is important that you know this. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. It relates to the negative in a sense, not getting what you deserve. And grace, grace is the positive. It's instead getting what you don't deserve. And God says he's going to overwhelm the Jews, Israel, with his mercy and his grace. They're going to realize that his favor was never about their good works. It was always a gift. And here's the thing. When they see, when they see God's mercy, when they see God's grace, it was going to bring something over 2,000 years in the making. Look at verse 10 as it continues. So he's going to pour out this mercy and grace on them. Why? So that, look at this, when they look on me. Who is me? God. It's God speaking here. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The Jews are going to see God's mercy and grace, and they're going to understand that it was Jesus all along. That's what they're going to see. They're going to see that Jesus is the Messiah that they rejected. Right? They're going to end up, it says here, mourning over Jesus. In fact, it says, how, do, how does it word it? As one mourns for what and for a what? Only child. What does John 3.16 tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In fact, it'll be as if they're mourning or weeping over a firstborn that has died. Isn't that interesting? You know, Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. You see, this would make no sense apart from Jesus Christ that they would look on me, God speaking, whom they have pierced. Think about it. How, God is spirit. How do you pierce or wound spirit? Do, do you know what I'm saying? My karate moves aren't good enough. Nothing would work. What can you wound or pierce spirit? You can't. So how does this make any sense? It doesn't, aside from Jesus. This is speaking about Jesus, that God would take on flesh and blood. He would, he would come as Jesus Christ and the Jews, this is the problem, they were blind to his incarnation of his first coming. God would come, the, pier, the pierced one. His head was pierced, was it not, by a crown of thorns. His hands and his feet were pierced by nails on that cross. His side was pierced with a spear to let blood and water flow. Jesus is the pierced one. It's, it's so clear. This is talking about Jesus, and when they, say, when they see Jesus' mercy and grace, when they see his mercy and grace, it says that they will mourn deeply and bitterly. They'll realize that they were the ones that pierced him, that they were the ones, it was their responsibility. They killed their Messiah, the one that had come to save them. Yet, of course, it wasn't only them. We're all responsible for the death of Christ, are we not? All of us. All of us are. We all share in the responsibility just as equally. Well, the chapter finishes off with this kind of depth of mourning that there will be, with this realization that they killed their Messiah. Verse 11. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. What is this talking about? This is talking about when um, King Josiah uh, died in battle, and we're told that all Jerusalem and Judea mourned over him. They wept over King Josiah. Because of this, this, it was in that battle. And, and, and God's saying in, an, in a similar way, there'll be a like national mourning and weeping over Jesus. Just like that, when they realize it was them that pierced Jesus. Verse 12 explains, The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by it's by themselves. What's going on here? The house of David. What would the house of David be? The kings. And then the house of Nathan would be representing the prophets. And then Levi would be representing the priests, right? The Levitical priesthood. And so God's saying, listen, all the offices of Israel are going to be mourning what took place. And he goes on though. He says this then, the family of the Shimites by itself. Now, now Shimei was this man that cursed David if you remember, when David was on the run from his son Absalom, that's when it was Shimei who cursed him. And so what's going on here? Some think that it's probably talking about even those that are kind of anti, <laughs> anti-Israel, you could say almost, Jews that are kind of like rejected, you know, the, the prophet, priest, and king offices. He says, even their wives. And then he goes on, verse 14, this covers it all. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. In other words, all of Israel, male and female, Every part of Israeli society is going to mourn as they realized they pierced Jesus Christ, the one that had come to save them. They, they, they were responsible. And this is really one of the, the great purposes of that day, of that day, of, the, of what we call the tribulation period, of these, the, the time of, it's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. One of the great purposes of it is, in fact, for God to deal supremely with the Jews, to open their, their eyes, to open their hearts, to the, to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Then, as other scriptures such as Romans 11 say, all Israel will be saved. Even, you know, even Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. If you remember in Matthew 23, 39, this is what he said when he lamented over Jerusalem. He said, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So at Christ's first time, at his first coming, Israel rejected him. He says, you know when you'll see me again? When you're willing finally to accept me as your Messiah. When you actually declare, blessed is he. And that's what Zechariah 12 is really speaking about this very time. When they look on him and instead of rejecting him, they bless him. That's what, that's what Jesus was talking about there. And in these verses, I want us to understand this this morning. We really see the pattern for coming to Jesus for salvation in true repentance. What do we do? First, we look to Jesus. That's what it said, verse 10. God said, when they look on me, on him whom they pierced, then what does it say? Then they will mourn. This is important. We mourn for our sins. We come in repentance. We repent of our sin. But you know what we do first? We look to Jesus we look to Jesus first. Don't think that you have to mourn your sins, that you have to kind of get cleaned up first and then come to Jesus. You look to Jesus. You know, we, we probably are all familiar this morning if you've ever been to a baseball game with John 3.16. Remember when they used to hold signs up baseball games behind the, the home plate? John 3.16. John 3.16, famous, famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Right? So, so we have that. But do you know what comes right before it? There's this interesting passage, the, the two verses right before in John 3, 14 and 15. I have it for you here. It says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What is this getting at? What's this talking about? If you know this story that it's referring to, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... This is referring to the time when Moses was leading the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. And, you know, kind of like us, we get a little bit whiny sometimes. And, you know, kind of like, oh God, why are you? And they started whining against Moses. Who is this leader that you gave us? He's horrible. And then they start whining against God. Why did you bring us out here to die? And what does God do? God's like, okay, well, this is how you want it. And he allows these, these, these poisonous snakes to go into the camp of Israel. And they start biting the Israelites and all these Israelites start dying. And what's interesting is what does, so they're like, oh no, we've made a mistake. <laughs> right? And so they say, Moses, help, help. And so Moses asks God, what do I do? What do I do? And what does God tell Moses to do? He says, take a, make a, a serpent out of bronze and put it on a staff. Which is interesting because if you guys have ever been to the doctor or to somewhere, have you ever seen the, the staff with the serpent, the snake on it? Do you know where they got that from? They stole it from the scriptures. Because what they would do is when, and this is what God said, if anybody is bit by a poisonous snake, all that they have to do is look at the serpent. They didn't have to touch it. They didn't have to do anything else. Just simply look at that snake on the staff and they will be healed. And then he talks about just, just as Moses did that, Jesus would be lifted up. And so what do you need to do? You need to just look to Jesus. That's what he's correlating here. Just look to him and you can be healed. This whole passage shows this. Israel, think about it. Israel rejects Jesus. Chapter 11. God supernaturally delivers. They still haven't accepted Christ. He supernaturally pours out his mercy and grace after they accept a false Jesus, a false Messiah. Haven't accepted Christ. Then Jesus, then Jesus is revealed as the Savior, as the pierced one. And what do they do? They look. They just simply look to Jesus. And they see him finally as their savior. Then they mourn. Okay. Do you see that? Then they mourn. And we get it so backwards. We totally think that we got to clean ourselves up. I got to fix all these issues that are in my life. Then I'll come to Christ. Christians, non-Christians alike, we do this. Romans 5, 8 is so clear. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you did anything, Jesus gave his life for you. You just got to look to Jesus. Look to him. And, you know, we get so concerned about outward actions and behavior, but Jesus said, do what? He said, you clean the inside of the cup first. Then the outside will get cleaned. Start inside. Just give Jesus a chance. Look to him. You know, I actually, I remember um, at, uh, uh, one of our Pentecostal conferences quite a number of years ago. There was a church in Edmonton that had become known as the gay-friendly church, a Pentecostal church, okay? And it wasn't gay-affirming, but it was gay-friendly. 
I think we should be gay-friendly too. Let me just say that. It wasn't gay-affirming, but gay-friendly. What, 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 the pastor spoke of it this way. The pastor said, and they were sharing at the conference one time, that they were seeing an, an, an incredible amount of homosexuals in, in Edmonton area coming to Christ, giving their life to Jesus. And he said, you know, oftentimes... They, they, people will come into our church, whatever it is that they're dealing with, and they'll be like, okay, well, you're, you're, okay, if I, give my, you know, if I give my life to Jesus, if I do the Jesus thing, I'm going to have to change this. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to stop that. I'm gonna, and you know what this pastor said? They, they said, you know what? We stopped kind of going down that road, and we would just say, you know what? We're just saying, can you give Jesus a chance? Can you just look to Jesus first? Because how can you expect somebody, the, the Bible talks about this, the carnal mind, it doesn't, it, you can't expect somebody that doesn't know Jesus to live like Jesus, to look like Jesus. And so he said, you know what we did is we just started to say, just please give Jesus a chance. And you know what they found is that there was a transformation from the inside out. They didn't necessarily have to tell people, you stop doing that, stop doing that. They let the Holy Spirit do that job. And then they would just simply be like Jesus. Jesus loves you, you need to know that Jesus loves you in your condition. Look at how God loves Israel and they accept the Antichrist. They're worshiping a false Messiah, yet God will step in and deliver. And we need to know that, that no matter what place or stage we're in, God loves us and he wants to change us and transform us from the inside out. Yet we get so, we get so up in arms about, you've got to fix, don't. And we tell people, well, yeah, you're going to have to stop that. Why don't we let the Holy Spirit do that? And say, start with Jesus. Because it's a spiritual thing. Spiritual eyes, blinded eyes can't see things of the Spirit. But how many of you know when you came to Christ, attitudes started to change? Actions started to change. Your life cleaned up. Because Jesus worked on you from the inside out. His Spirit started to transform you. And maybe you're here this morning, and and you know what? Maybe you're in a bit of a mess. I mean, aren't we all a little bit sometimes? bit of a mess. And you can't fix yourself. You can't deliver yourself. You've tried maybe with the help of others, programs, other things, maybe manpower, willpower, self-power, and it only goes so far. You need Jesus. You need his strength to deliver and to save you because it is truly a supernatural salvation. Supernatural. It's not natural because it's all about his mercy and his grace. There's nothing that you can do Nothing. The only thing you can do is look to Jesus. You look to Jesus and you allow him to start to change you from the inside out, to transform you. Then you mourn. Then you repent. Repent, change your thinking, your mind about the ways of sin. But you come to Jesus first. You have to come to Jesus first. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that. It's by grace that you have been saved. Right? It's, it's, it's by grace, through faith. This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's not about you, I'm sorry to say. It's all about him. You need to just look to Jesus. And I want to invite you this morning, whether you're Christian or whether you're not, to look to Jesus today, to come honestly and let him be the one to clean you up. And maybe you're here this morning, you need You need deliverance. You need to know that Jesus is here to deliver. You need salvation. Well, Jesus is here today to save. Whether you're a Christian or not. We're going to close this morning with with a song of worship. I'm going to invite the team to come back at this time. And and what I want us to do is, um, I'm I'm just going to allow us, where we are in our seats, you're welcome to come up. You know, about a month or two ago, we introduced what we called carpet time, just to create space, allow time for God to work and to minister in our lives. Just up here, along the front, around the stairs, and that's all I'm going to say is, this morning, as we, as we prepare our hearts to just meet with Jesus, carpet time is just, a, it's giving him some time to work in our life. And I want us to do that this morning, to give Jesus some time, to look to Jesus, to come and to look to Jesus this morning. Whatever your needs might be, whatever it is that you're walking through, look to Jesus. Put your eyes on him. And so as they begin to sing, I'm going to be up front. I'm going to be seeking the Lord, looking to him. There's things in my life that I know he needs to work on. And I want to invite you, join up front. Join me up front at the carpet.
As we take time and just allow, Lord, come and minister and speak to me because I can't do this in myself. I have to look to you because I know it's not by might and it's not by power. So Jesus, I desperately need you to work. I need you to work in my life. Even just right now, Lord, I just invite you in these moments, Lord, wherever we find ourselves, whatever position or stage we find ourselves in, I thank you that you open up yourself to us. And God, I ultimately, I do pray, obviously, that people would come to find in their deliverance you, Jesus. But Lord, you're a good God, and I just pray that we would just get started there, that we would just start with you, Jesus, not fixing ourselves up, not prettying ourselves up. Lord, ultimately, deep down, we're a bit of a mess. It's only you that makes us into a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's only you, Jesus. It's only your work. So, Lord, this morning, come and meet us. Speak to us, Lord. Transform us. Deliver us, I pray. I pray for freedom in this room. I pray for transformation to take place in this room. I pray for salvation to take place this morning in this room and online. Lord, come. Meet us here today, I pray. Lord, whatever the need might be, I thank you that you are able, that you want to work in our lives. Why don't we stand together this morning? As the team just sings, if, if you want to come join me up front, come join me. If you want to kneel where you are. But as they sing, spend some time with Jesus. Allow him to speak. Look to Jesus this morning. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.